Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I am willing to bet that the majority of people who public radio could possibly serve, the people who should be invested in the quality of their public radio stations are willing to fight for it if they know what's going on, if they're made aware. And that's what has to happen. That's veteran journalist, speaker, and author Celeste Headley. Her document is An Anti-Racist Future, a vision and plan for the transformation of public media. Do stay with us. Subscribe to Full Disclosure on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. We are on Spotify and NPR One. And follow on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Joining me is Celeste Headley, U.S. radio journalist, author, public speaker. You've seen her TED Talk. She co-hosts the weekly PBS series Retro Report. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm a little busy, but I'm good. I, and I appreciate that you made time for our humble little show. Oh, I always now. love having you on. The thing that's really grabbed headlines, you've grabbed headlines in a lot of ways. I even saw you uh, linked on the Today Show about your your charity effort. But you, uh, as, as Current noted, when public media host and journalist Celeste Headley began a series of Zoom meetings last year, she didn't know the discussions would lead to a movement to address racism in the industry. But the public media anti-racist partnership published a call to action earlier this week with more than 200 co-signers and endorsements from several station leaders. You also posted this document on Medium. I have to ask you, how did this come about? You and I would discuss this for years. There was a whole side of your life when you were at WNYC that came out in the press that, you know, as friends, you never discussed this with me, kind of the systemic racism there and the sexism. We saw it explode at WAMU, another member station last year in the summer with a staff mutiny over social media. So what was the genesis for your movement? I mean, I it certainly wasn't a movement. I mean, I was just watching all of the social media posts coming from colleagues in our industry, um, meaning in public media. And they sure. were posting about racism and sexism in their own stations. I mean, some of these were journalists. You you saw them, I'm sure, as well as I did. These Some of these were journalists where they were the only person of color at, you know, at a 10 staff station um, and they'd been isolated and they had been gaslit. And uh, I just thought, well, this is something I can actually help with. I, you know, I'm an expert in, in communication and conversation. I can um, make people feel less isolated where they are. I can lead and moderate this conversation to try and work through what's happening to everybody. So that's how it started. It wasn't meant to be a, a, a movement at all. But isn't there something about the industry writ large, not just in public media, across all of, I, I just know this is the case in journalism where people have been gaslit, especially in TV where it's catty and chatty and Machiavellian and has always been white and elitist. I guess the surprise is that it also happens quite a bit in the supposedly woke land of, of public media. Yeah, I think that's a surprise to everyone except us, right? <laughs> I mean, um, uh, you know, I've been working on these issues for more than 20 years. I know other people have um, as well. Um, and we are supposed to be better. 
and we're we're not. I, I I'm hesitate to say that's because I think when I look at other industries, I think in many ways public media can be better in in, in instances. Um, I think especially in terms of coverage. When I when I think about what makes public media so valuable, it's it's not necessarily the management, it's the talent. It's the reporters, it's the journalists and editors and audio engineers um, who are so dedicated to the mission of public radio that they will stay despite sure. all of this other stuff going on. And I also have to give shout out to some of the leaders in public radio right now. I mean, NPR is now led by John Lansing, who really, I believe, is honestly and sincerely dedicated to fixing some of these issues and to making um, NPR, at least, an anti-racist workplace. So I, I think it's getting better. But yeah, I, it is a surprise to people when they find out that some of these abuses are happening in their beloved public radio stations. So Celeste, it's one thing for an organization to be anti-racist and to wear it overtly and to have uh, mission statements and hiring statements. And, and you've also cited the, what was it, the Kerner Report in 1968. Mm-hmm. It's a whole other thing for, and I don't even know if it's microaggressions, but the little pinpricks of editors saying, well, don't delve into that or don't, don't you know, for example, you tweeted, don't ever hint at, at uh, somebody losing a white majority because that will scare our listenership. There is something like death by a thousand cuts. I guess it's benign neglect. And that happens across the board. I mean, I experienced that in print journalism for the longest time. Yeah. And it is death by a thousand cuts. I mean, that's one way of saying microaggression, right? It's these tiny little things that sort of erode you know, it's funny when you look at, at the natural world, one of the most destructive forces in all of nature is water. Oh, yeah. And that's not necessarily because uh, just of tsunamis. It's because over time, a drip does real damage. <laughs> and um, the same is true in our workplaces. And all these little tiny the edits to your pieces to make sure that they're not offending the white majority of listeners the comments that people make in their feedback. I had one CEO that told me I had a a panel discussion every Friday on my show. And one particular panel discussion, there were two black women and a a Latinx man. And then the the other panelist was a a white man. And my CEO called and said, you can't have uh, two black women and a Latinx person. That's too many liberals. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, wow. I mean, the layers of assumptions that had to have been made for you to say that are just insane. So, yeah, there's no big in. I mean, I obviously have a very famous incident of of racism and sexism. But um, for most of us, there is no big event we can point to. It's these tiny little things that erode your well-being and frankly, erode the quality of the coverage over time. You know, I have to tell you, one of the highlights for me professionally in my time in my decade in New York at the turn of the century was being called down to WNYC at Varick Street to do things like the Brian Lehrer Show or the Amy Edding Show. You felt like you were in a conversation with the tri-state area. It's like the Taj Mahal of public radio stations. It's very, it's connected to all of New York City social life and foundations. The pay for staff is great. And I have to tell you that I felt, I felt so clueless that I was kind of like Mr. Magoo passing through there for several years and that I did my thing. And yes, it was decidedly white that 
people who were dear to me who I subsequently worked with. I worked with you on the show, Tell Me More, and I loved it when you were guest hosting. I worked with Adoro Doji at Bloomberg. I've always loved Farad Chadea's stuff. I had zero idea, and no one on the staff, no one in the WNYC diaspora led on that it was such a hostile work environment until all this stuff broke spectacularly in the newspapers two years ago. Yeah, and there's a few reasons for that. I mean, uh, first of all, people of color and especially women of color are among the first to be let go. There is absolutely no hesitation whatsoever to lay off a woman of color, and it doesn't matter how much status and and credibility she has. Um, So there's always this fear that if you speak up, you're going to be kicked to the curb. And we have seen incidents of that over and over and over and over again. And I have been let go multiple times. In fact, frankly, when I released this open letter that we were you referred to at the, at the top, which is called an anti-racist future, uh, a vision and plan for the transformation of public media, the response from a couple general managers was, wow, these people sound really angry. Wow. <laughs> so th- there's always the danger that you're going to be called angry. But there's also another layer to it, which is which is especially true of public radio, which is that managers often treat stations as though they're family. And there's all this language as though we're a family and, Mm. you know, we're all here together working toward the same goal. And it's almost considered inappropriate and unseemly to air the family's secrets. And as though if you if you talk about what's happening behind closed doors, you're endangering the safety of the entire system of of public radio in and of itself. Um, and so a lot of people keep quiet just because that's it's so frowned upon to to let those skeletons out of the closet. So it's a kind of a it's a kind of a cosa it's a kind of a cosa nostra. But here's the thing: you also have uh, an organization. I mean, culturally, it's supposed to be hyper woke. It was supposed yeah. to be well ahead of its time, hyper, hyper woke, going back to the Susan Stamberg and Cokie Roberts 1970s and everything that you hear. And so that's why kind of the, the shadow and persona of it is so striking to me. And I wonder when I read your letter, when I heard about the movement, when I saw these things breaking up, does it just boil down to the fact that management is overwhelmingly white, staff yeah. is overwhelmingly white? I imagine the listenership. The, the pledge-driving, paying listenership is overwhelmingly white and aging right now. And there's just that kind of, maybe it's an innovator's dilemma. You don't want to disrupt that. A lot of these people just want to make it to retirement, their pension. You have had new programming in public radio that that does kind of push the envelope. You know, as, you've, as you may have heard that, uh, you know, Code Switch had a hard time getting picked up several years ago. Now it's covered itself in glory. Uh, louder than a riot. That would have been unthinkable on NPR a few years ago, kind of getting into certain areas of hip-hop intrigue. And that has finally been passed. But for years, there were, I guess, microaggressive ways of pushing that kind of content out and saying, it's it's too edgy for us, or it's not the right voice. Or certainly, you've listed several other ways of, with which kind of this drip-drip water fell on the boulder. Yeah. You know, there's a really interesting study that came out of the Columbia Journalism Review. It was called Sourcing Diversity, WHYY and the Rocky Road to Cultural Competency. And I believe that came out in fall of 2019. But I remember uh, when WHYY had a, had a survey, and, and we're talking about Philadelphia here, right? I mean, this is a, a, a large population of BIPOC people there. 
they found they found sure. that only five percent of black people even knew that that public radio existed. <laughs> um, so mm. we have been uh, creating content for a largely white audience for a very long time, and it's become a self fulfilling prophecy, right? Because when you create right. content for mostly white people, then your audience will be mostly white, which means as you move forward, you say, oh, we have to cater to our audience. And look, it's mostly white. It just becomes a cycle. Attracting white audiences and then catering to white audiences. And then that's the audience that you attract. And we simply have to break loose of that and fulfill our mission, our true mission as public media, which is to serve the public. And that comes becomes true not just in the content you create, but you know, I when I was at WNYC, I found it amazing that this is not true anymore. But at the time when I was there and I I got laid off in I wasn't laid off, I was let go in 2012, there was no single either female or person of color yeah, who yeah, was yeah. trusted to have their own show by themselves. There were on the media, which is Brooke Gladstone, but they paired her with an older white fellow. There was um, Radio Lab, which of course, Jad Abumrad, who is not white, but they paired Jad with an older white guy. They had zero shows in New York that were solo hosted by a female or a person of color. I mean, think about that for a second. It, it's, it boggles the mind. You know, and the interesting thing is I'm reading uh, in the current profile says anti-blackness shaped the policies, norms, and standards of public radio. They determine whose opinions are valued, whose voices are heard, whose stories are told and taken seriously, who is promoted, and whose resume never gets a second glance. Historically, black on-air talent are told their dialect and speaking voices do not fit the public radio prototype. There's a strong bias against journalists who have a distinct ethnic or regional tone in their vocal delivery. You're right. Management does pat itself on the back for hiring journalists and editors of color, but then does not support them or give them space to grow professionally. While moving to anti-racist principles may require shifting funds around, keep in mind that budgets should reflect an organization's values. And this is especially true in public media. So has have these values been codified? They have to be updated? I mean, again, this stuff is going back 50 years now. Yeah, I mean, I you know, CPB, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, now requires that you create a diversity statement if you're going to get a CPB grant. But those just statements are just not worth the paper they're printed on in most cases. I mean, I'm sorry, that's simply the truth. Some of the stations that have then been, re have been exposed as having some of the biggest problems in terms of bias and discrimination and abuse had diversity statements in place that they were there was no accountability. There was not even any metrics. How do you track it? You know, if your values, if you claim that your values are A, B, and C, then you need to also have the accompanying um, measure by which you track whether you are meeting those values or not. And that's a big part of it that's, that's absolutely missing. You have a, a president or CEO or a general manager of a radio station who says diversity, we value diversity. Okay, what does that mean? And are you actually meeting the target that you haven't yet created, right? I mean, there's no metric. How do you reward something or punish something if there's no metric by which to to measure success? Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Celeste Headley, radio journalist, author, public speaker, co-host of the weekly PBS series Retro Report. Um, we used to tag team on the late great show, Tell Me More. I believe it came to its end, its premature end in 2013. Celeste, 
Uh, you and I have always kid. You are you are so multi-chromatic and multi-talented. In addition to singing, playing instruments, doing radio, doing TV, speeches, books. Uh, you, I, I guess, did I read that your maternal grandma was African American? Your maternal grandma was of Russian Jewish descent. But that doesn't even begin to describe your composition. Right. My maternal grandfather was of African-American with a little bit of Native American thrown in, among other things. Um, and my maternal grandmother was Russian Jewish. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of other stuff thrown in. I, I am uh, I am the melting pot <laughs> that they claimed America was quite some time ago. And, you know, interestingly enough, it's it's caused us to it's caused a lot of people to feel like because I am racially ambiguous, at least when you look at me, they think that it's their right to define what my race is, which is surprising. <laughs> um, and deciding whether or not I can call myself one thing or another thing. I mean, I identify as black and Jewish because those were the people that raised me. And why are they the people that raised me? That's because when, you know, when the Civil War ended, the black children of a white plantation owner were not going to end up with the white family. Right. So it's always been the African-Americans in my family and in particular, my great my Jewish grandmother that ended up taking us in. But in terms of journalism, it causes a problem. Right. Because mm -hmm. uh, I'm biased in all kinds of ways, supposedly. Um, I'm certainly biased on issues of gender because I'm female. Um, I'm biased on issues of of. Uh, the Jews. I'm biased on issues of blacks. I'm I'm probably liberal because, of course, someone can't be black and Jewish and not be liberal. So, you know, one of the things that we talked about in our open letter was to get rid of this idea of objectivity because so far the measure of objectivity has been white and male. If you're white and male, then you can report on anything. Being white and male doesn't make you automatically biased. But being the member of a of a of a different demographic group, especially one that has been oppressed in in past years and current years, that makes you biased. Well, you, know, you note that the first public report on the on public radio in 1978, decades ago, said that quote public radio has been asleep at the transmitter close quote on issues of race, and we see an audit seemingly every year from NPR on staff composition and uh, poll results and everything, saying that yet again we've fallen way short. And I wonder about kind of is almost this self-flagellation of, of auditing, but the action has never truly followed up. There are very small things like unpaid internships and other elements that kind of perpetuate you know, the status quo. To, to be someone who takes a public broadcasting internship, you kind of have to be of means, right? You have to uh, maybe go to a different city, uh, take on a side job. Uh, it's it's a very difficult thing to do. And in the past, it was just assumed because we are equal opportunity employers that, you know, we're we're doing our job. And yet every year end when that audit comes out, there's this week or so of self-flagellation and then the status quo persists. Yeah, over and over. And if you look at hiring decisions, who is trusted to host shows, who is is trusted to to be retained, who's trusted to become a correspondent? I mean, those who are are not, um, you know, steeped in journalism, may not realize that there are ranks when it comes to reporters. <laughs> There's an assistant producer, which is sort of like your entry level, and then you can move up to producer, you can move into reporter one, reporter two, eventually you could become a correspondent, which is, you know, the highest level of uh, trust and expertise at, uh, in public radio, at least. Um, all of those decisions 
automatically defer to white men. Now, I, I should, you know, this is how we end up with these, as you, you know, talking about these reports every year that just show. And, you know, it's funny if you look at the headlines, they're like, wow, diversity really hasn't gotten that much better. Or it goes the other way and you'll get this sort of um, overblown bragging. Mm. They'll say, look, diversity numbers have gone up. And then you'll you'll read through the report and realize they've gone up by like 2% <laughs> or 3%, um, which is just not something to brag about. So you'd think that because this is, keeps happening, you'd think that people would change the policies and the systems and the way we make these decisions in order to get a different result. But we don't because we're, there's a tradition in place. This is how decisions are made. Things are made on gut instinct. How does a, an executive producer know that somebody is ready to be the host of a show? Because they know mm. in their gut. <laughs> and, and that's incredibly biased. How does somebody know that someone's ready to leap to the management level, that they're ready to be a leader? leader? Because they know. They know a leader when they see one. That's how those decisions are made. And also there's this whole tradition of how things are done. Right. But the way things are done is how we got here and how we keep staying here year after year after year, which means you're going to have to make changes and you're going to have to make changes that feel uncomfortable. So with that circularity, Celeste, and I, I, I guess we get a little bit in the kind of the wonky weeds of public radio governance, but I think it's important because NPR is not you know, it's it's comprised of all these member stations across the country repatriating money, and they control its board, and they they have controlled its board and controlled NPR since an, a near kind of bankruptcy, near death experience in the early '80s. So I've always been told by correspondents that that's been the biggest obstruction to change is the member stations whose management and staff is overwhelmingly white. They push back. Uh, you know, that's what shows like Tell Me More, which were diversity-centric and diversity-themed, and they brought on kind of an ensemble of, of characters like the barbershop and everything, they'd be relegated to odd hours on the member station calendar, and then they'd, yeah. they'd kind of rack up losses at the mothership, and then they'd be canceled. Or you'd get some platitudes about, yes, we hope to reflect diversity in the tentpole shows of Morning Edition and All Things Considered. So again, this goes back maybe to a governance issue that the people sending money and controlling the organization are hesitant to change anything, hesitant to offend a listenership that is aging, but still sends in its checks every six months. Yeah. And, th you know, this is one of the things that we tried to address very clearly and fearlessly in the open letter. I mean, the very one of the last paragraphs reads where these forms of accountability don't happen voluntarily. They can and will happen through community organizing, protest, sit ins, walkouts, encouraging donors to withhold funds and other forms of confrontation and divestment. And frankly, there are a number of people who said they did not want to sign onto the open letter because of that paragraph mm. in particular, because they did not want to take the step of encouraging people to not donate to public radio. Um, but frankly, that is how we've ended up where we are. That ha there has to be accountability between listeners who care about the quality of public radio and whether it's actually serving its mission and and listeners who want it to sound the same way it did in 1985 when they had Car Talk and This American Life. And I guess they didn't have This American Life yet, but um, Prairie Home Companion. There are always going to be listeners who resist change. And public radio listeners are among the most likely to dislike change. Mm. You know, if you get rid of a host that has been around for a very long time but is extremely problematic, 
listeners will rise up and complain. I don't know if that's true of the majority of listeners. I just don't know. I just know they're very vocal. And so, yeah, it, you're going to have to deal with some listeners who are unhappy with change. But I am willing to bet that the majority of people who public radio could possibly serve, the people who should be invested in the quality of their public radio stations, are willing to fight for it if they know what's going on, if they're made aware. And that's what has to happen. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Celeste Headley. Uh, you've heard her all across the board on, on uh, NPR. I used to do Tell Me More with her. Celeste uh, recently guest hosted 1A. She is a writer, professional speaker. You have definitely caught her TED Talk anchor. Uh, Celeste, on this uh, report on the anti-racist future of public media, uh, how much of this, I think, is going to foment and, and I wonder if the ship has sailed because the member stations, as we talked about, and community activism and some of the, the more um, provocative lines towards the end of the statement on action, how much of this is being obviated by technological change? The fact that all of us really are overwhelmingly listening and consuming to audio on our smartphones, that we're not uh, enthralled to the public broadcasting affiliates anymore because they have the tallest tower in town, that this has all gone to podcasts. And Apple and the other platform makers, if anything, right now are the ones who control the power of distribution. Well, that's kind of ridiculous. A, terrestrial radio is still king. Numbers have gone down during the pandemic, especially because nobody's commuting. But as we speak right now, terrestrial radio still rules. Second of all, who is dominating the podcast audience? I mean, come on. It's NPR. If you look at the top 20 podcasts... Um, it's iHeartRadio, I believe, and NPR mm. dominate the top 20, period. And that's because, look, NPR knows how to make good audio. We know how to get uh, voices in quality. Nobody wants to listen to a scratchy sound uh, of somebody talking for 20 minutes where you lose every sixth word. Um, we know how to create a landscape with audio where you have interesting sounds and what we call ambient sound that's the 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 sound of the room or the the landscape around you right. coming in to create pictures and 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 sort of movies for your ear we know how to keep you engaged and so it is no surprise to me at all that NPR is absolutely winning at the podcast game but at the same time Celeste it's no longer the only game in town in terms of producing the NPR sound you've read articles about the NPR apostates who have gone off to Gimlet uh, Wondery, all the other places, there's been a hiring boom during the golden age of audio. And it's not necessarily kind of the ultimate destination anymore if you're an undergraduate, whether person of color or, or journalism school person. There are other ways of learning this craft. What I'm saying is that, that you know, yes, it, it still might remain the gold standard, but maybe not as much so. Um, I mean, maybe. I don't think that's true right now. Um, I'm, I just looked up top 20 podcasts and you've got Radio Lab, This American Life, <laughs> Fresh Air, Planet Money, Up First from NPR. I mean, right now, NPR is, will continue to dominate. You're absolutely correct that they could lose that. And to be clear, I don't want to get too wonky here, but um, when we say NPR, um, most people think NPR equals public radio, which obviously is not true. Just like ABC, mm. CB, CBS, NBC, there's there's different 
public radio networks like PRI yeah. and American Public Media. But we'll we'll use NPR as shorthand here. Right now, NPR is still dominating that. And and many of the people like the podcasts like Serial or even, I, I can't think of them right now, but some of the other podcasts that are doing quite well were people who were trained, raised, and learned the values and techniques of public radio from public radio. However, is it possible that in the years to come that won't be true because public radio will not seize this moment, will not make the changes that it needs to stay relevant, to retain the talent that it needs? Absolutely. And that's sort of what makes um, the efforts of uh, not just myself, but everyone in my group and who are working on these kind of issues, that's what makes it so crucial. You know, one of the things that I said in that letter is it's we're long past soon <laughs> and we're nearly to too late. Like this, these changes need to happen now or or public radio will not be relevant anymore. Not in any real compelling way. We have to change. Celeste, as I've mentioned, you've been a guest host on the show 1A at WAMU, which is the uh, NPR affiliate Colossus, the, the main NPR station for Washington, D.C., for the longest time. And uh, yes, there were a thousand other headlines. We were in the throes of a pandemic and an economic crisis and the presidential election uh, and everything last summer. But there was also a staff mutiny at WAMU, which I, I think you know observers of journalism would have thought was amazing. Uh, people pushed back at what they thought the station manager and uh, programming director's microaggressions were, and they very publicly pushed back over social media which is a direct conduit in a way that they said kind of you know what non-disclosure agreements be damned i dare you to i dare you to kind of enforce them on me now that i'm opening this up to the public and then next thing you know the washington post and current were writing about it next thing you know there's a contentious all hands meeting next thing you know the head of the station is gone and they're still looking for a new head of the station a head of the station by the way who has been a powerhouse in public radio for a long time. He used to run Marketplace, for example. So yeah, it was it's a massive earthquake. And and that same kind of thing, we haven't had quite the aftershocks that they did at WMU, but the same kind of thing has been happening at PRX as well, a distribution company that does a lot of podcasts. Uh yeah, I I know WAMU quite well. You know, it's it's odd. Um you You'd get to stations. I mean, like time out, Celeste. It's owned by American University. Yeah. Right. This is not. I'm not. This is not Liberty or Falwell <laughs> University or anything. This is American University. It's supposed to be hyper woke. These were people at kind of the uh, the woke vanguard decades ago of a liberal arts degree. That's such. And that's that was such the crap, amazing though, thing Robin. to me. That's such crap. People believe that. That is such a false stereotype to think that the leaders of public universities are liberal and woke. It is ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Um, you know, one of the biggest uh, obstacles to change and reform at many public radio stations is because they're university licensees. It means mm. any changes in, in HR issues, um, they all have to go through the university. And sometimes that is the most difficult thing to get through. Uh, general managers will tell you the same thing, that part of the reason that makes that ca them cautious is because they know they're not going to be able to get anything through their university boards and the university leadership. So See, that I think that's fascinating, and I'm not playing coy or dumb. I would not have expected that, and I thought I'm fairly steeped in the ways of this world. Oh, God. No, it's, it's just, it's so difficult. It's so difficult to get any change from anyone. 
And in fact, there's a, there's a, at least a couple stations that have gone through the process, which is long and difficult and legally tangled and incredibly expensive to buy themselves out of a university licensee situation, because that was one of the only ways they were able to make progress. Yeah, the, the whole stereotype of the liberal university, it's just bonkers. It's bonkers. Well, this segs into uh, an element of your activism here and that there's a potential uh, fundraising element of this, of kind of financial autonomy and self-determination. If people do band together and say, we want to break away from the traditional old you know, community pledge drive mold, that we can build from scratch the governance and the funding and uh, the safeguards by reinventing community radio on our own. Can you elaborate on that? Um. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. I, I want to be careful here because funding is so is so often a very complicated algebra for public radio stations. Um, again, there is a stereotype that the government pays for public radio, and it absolutely does not. NPR gets a tiny percentage of its funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, by the way. The mm. government doesn't pay any money directly to public radio. It goes to a private corporation called the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and CPB is the one that issues grants. But frankly, right. if we were to cut funding for CPB, NPR would be fine. <laughs> Don't do it, please, because there's a lot of public, especially the smaller public radio stations especially in rural areas, frankly, that the public radio stations and the public TV stations that often serve a, a largely white, largely conservative audience, and they get almost all of their funding from CPB. If you were to eliminate that uh, funding, you would absolutely isolate those communities and they would have no public broadcasting at all. So it's, it's very frustrating to hear people talk about how to reform funding for public broadcasting. I firmly believe that making news nonprofit is absolutely one of the only ways to ensure that news is fair and accurate and balanced and uninfluenced by corporate uh, entities. When it comes to reform at, at stations, I also believe that people are willing to more willing to donate to a public radio station that they believe lives up to its values and actually lives up to the values of the of the actual population of the community in which they're based. I think people are willing to to donate for that and that's been shown again and again and again. For most public radio stations the largest source of funding is individual donations. Right. And and will that it could that be endangered if people were to believe that public radio stations we're, we're not living up to the values of diversity and inclusion and equity? Uh, yes, absolutely. Because public radio listeners, by and large, care about that stuff. I want to read a letter of support from the director of audio journalism from the uh, Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. As an educator working to mentor and train the next generation of audio journalists, many of whom aspire to work in public media. I'm grateful for the time and labor that went into this excellent letter and enthusiastically support its vision, recommendations, and calls for action. My colleagues and I are committed to work, the work of anti-racist journalism education, and are continually updating and improving our program content, methods, and standards to reflect this commitment. This has often involved listening to and incorporating feedback and guidance from our students, especially our Black students, to whom we are accountable. Having worked for many years in public media, I know firsthand how much the implicit audience 
has been white listeners and how my black, indigenous, people of color colleagues have faced pushback and claims of bias for daring to name racism, both in their reporting and in their workplaces. I am committed to training, supporting, and learning from a new generation of anti-racist public media journalists who reflect and are responsive to the diversity of the communities they serve. This letter gives me hope that as they begin their careers in public media, they will find allies and mentors in this work. Callie Anderson, Director of Journalism at the Craig Newmark School. Uh, you had no shortage of people who signed this letter. You can go to celesteheadley.medium.com. And that is at some professional risk to these people because, again, as you noticed before, but by merely having two African-American women and a Latinx guest, you you know, once rocked the boat for a producer. Yeah. And, and I absolutely, I did, I did not reach out to anyone personally, even people who'd worked on the letter, even people who have been my friends for decades. I did not reach out to anyone and ask personally if they would sign the letter. And it's for that very reason. I don't want to pressure anyone whose workplace may not be supportive of their putting their names on the letter. And yet we're climbing mm. up towards, uh, 500 signatures. I think we're at like 470 maybe um, signatures right now and the support of, of uh, I think, 10 different organizations as a whole. I, I think we're, it's funny because I, I, for our Patreon supporters, one of the things I'm going to offer is a, this really beautiful poster that says it's from Hamilton. It's not the, it's not a moment, it's the movement. And I actually think it's both right now. This is both a moment in that we have a, a small opening in which to really address this, but it's also a movement in, the, in that this is not going to be some headline that comes, comes and creates a bunch of discussion for a few days and then goes away. I have absolutely no intention of allowing that to happen. This is unpaid work, but I will stay on it because we have a chance. We finally have a chance to bring in about meaningful change, and I will not let go of it. To that end, Celeste Headley, tell me how you are using Patreon. I mean, proceeds of which would use would fund theoretically what? Uh, internships, uh, uh, specific stations. I mean, what is the <laughs> ultimate goal? If somebody wrote you a, a massive non-conditional check today, what would you use it for? Yeah, so I have to put that caveat first. That at, at this point, the the Patreon support is like maybe a hundred and twenty dollars a month. So right now, it's just kind of offsetting any printing or or things that I'm doing because all of this work is unpaid. Uh, if we'd got a massive check right now, there's a few things that we would do. And I'm actually creating a proposal right now to try to get some grants to fund this. So I'll tell you first. Um, I wanted I want to create consulting services for every size of public radio organization. So that that's not just something that a large station can afford. But also, I, I want to create consulting services services that are actually science-based. A lot of the DEI um, workshops and things, not only do they are, they, are there no evidence that they work, but there's some evidence that they actually are counterproductive and that they increase bias rather than lessen it. So... I want to be able to create a service where we can go in and really help a, an organization get launched on its transformation. Second, mm -hmm. and, and very importantly, I want to be able to train individual facilitators and moderators. So I, I want to, two or three times a year, I want to bring people in for a three-day training and get them certified as moderators in DEI conversations. And then you can send them out back to their workplaces and you get these little uh, vortex points of actual professional facilitators who can help these conversations go well. 
part of the reason we're in this particular place is not only that people avoid these conversations and these discussions, it's not only because management tries to keep these these decisions opaque and prevent transparency, but it's also because when the discussions do happen, they're just not productive or constructive. Nothing gets accomplished over the course of those conversations. So mm. fixing that in and of itself would be fantastic. I have to ask you, Celeste, in the 10 minutes or so we have left with you, how much of this is driven by kind of the incumbent stars of public broadcasting? I think about a Terry Gross who's traveled such a journey for, you know, what, 45, 50 years, and the, uh, specifically the uh, substitutes that she picks for her show, or some of the other shows across the board that they decide to bring in someone or, or mix the pot or not really hand the baton over to a successor or a true understudy. Do you see what I'm saying? Is it you if you want to be a true ally of of people getting ahead as personalities and as producers and as people with agency and power in public media, does some of it have to start with the stars? Yeah. And you can look at public radio and see two different uh, strategies for that. You look at somebody like Susan Stamberg, who stepped down as a daily host and she started doing her own thing. She became a special correspondent. You know, she she reports on beautifully on on things that she really cares about and she's passionate about, but she stepped aside. But there's also those who are in public radio who refuse to do that. And I think they take advantage of the fact that listeners um, hate change. They take advantage mm. of the fact that that public radio listeners are among the most loyal audience in the country and they just stay there <laughs> for a really long time, making it impossible or very, very difficult, I should say, for um, new voices to be heard. Um, so, yeah, you see two very different styles and strategies in that particular case. And I, I would say, you know, if you've been there for decades, it may be time to try something else and let a new voice come forward. I mean, in, in fairness, in fairness, if you poll, you know, longtime public radio listeners and donors, there might be a, a, an undying nostalgia for Garrison Keillor or Car Talk, which I never quite understood, right? We are kind of maybe at the precipice, an incipient point of a, a changing of the guard. You've seen this stuff written about power in the Democratic Party, for example. How old is Joe Biden? How old is Nancy Pelosi? There are other people that are banging on the gate, but the incumbents are not quite ready to hand over power. Right. Although, you know, I found it interesting that the person asking Nancy Pelosi if if, if uh, she should be making room for younger leaders was Leslie Stahl, who is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, yeah, we have to make room for other voices. I'm not anti I'm, I'm not ageist. I don't think there's that, that that there's a point at which someone becomes not valuable because of their age. That's insane. Um, there's institutional knowledge that needs to be preserved. Um, many of them are quite as good at their jobs now as they ever were. That's not the question. The question is, um, what is your responsibility as someone who's been very successful for also making room at the table for new voices? And, and to a certain extent, I'm the worst person to talk about this because I didn't ever get that opportunity, right? I've never been allowed to stay in a, in a job long enough in public radio to become any kind of legend. <laughs> I have been moved on and moved on and moved on over and over and over again. So I don't know what that would be like. I don't know what that would be like to be that secure and beloved in a position to where it would be difficult for me to make room. It's quite easy for me because I don't, I don't have that kind of stability and I have never had it. 
by way of awkward <laughs> transition in the few minutes we have left with you, Celeste Headley, you are a legend in the eyes of the Today Show, which I chuckled when I saw the headline. This is Maryland my favorite woman. headline. Donations. Yeah. Dona- oh, you took my way my thunder. Donations pour in for Maryland woman's little free pantry. I mean, gosh, you're everywhere. Uh, I just don't want anyone hungry, you said. Donations pour in for your little free pantry. Galvanized by rising rates of food insecurity, author Celeste Headley created a miniature food pantry for her community. Somebody scribbled a letter. Thank you so very much. You have been helping two families stay afloat these past couple of weeks. Signed, Edis. Uh, You are an empath. Wow. You give talks on this. You give encouragement to people. Your TED Talk, your book, on listening. Tell me about this idea and in the moment we are in right now. And yes, we're feeling helpless in that we're homebound and there's not much we can do. And yet you did something. Yeah. And I I know just from my own personal experience and from research as well, that one of the best things you can do for yourself when you are feeling overwhelmed and powerless um, is to to help someone else, even small things. Um, The the food pantry is, is, is not a small thing, because the need is so great that I go out almost every morning and it it's empty. But it really makes me feel like that I can do something. It, it makes me feel empowered at a time when the pandemic made me feel disempowered, right? I mean, because there was nothing I could do about the pandemic. <laughs> there was nothing I could do to speed up a vaccine or, or make people put on their masks. But this, providing food for the people in my neighborhood, that that... I could do. And I want to be clear that this is the a joint project between me and two of my neighbors and very dear friends who we all put money in, I mean, put money, put food into the food pantry to make sure that, that it's never empty. I mean, that's the main thing. I don't want to ever want anyone who's hungry or needs to feed their kids to go there and find it empty. Do you always think about how, you know, across the board, if you were to talk to people all across Rockville. You could go from door to door and there were people that would probably want to give a lot of food away. It gets thrown away overwhelmingly. It creates more methane in landfills. There's such a sad disconnect in that people of means are having groceries delivered right now. People who are of lesser means are lining up in record amounts around food banks and soup kitchens. It's it's a shame that there isn't, you know, somebody to kind of disintermediate. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I sometimes feel like uh, that everybody's, uh, you know, as in so many things, I, I feel like people uh, see this as a binary, right? They either can't do anything or or it has to be some grand gesture. <laughs> so I, I think that people sometimes miss the small stuff they can do. You know, another thing that we do is every Saturday, uh, me and my friends make, make, we make a little over 100 sandwiches for the food bank. And, you know, it's funny because uh, one of my friends was dropping off the sandwiches and the food bank employee that was there said, oh, my God, I'm so glad you guys are here that everybody loves your sandwiches. Mm. And they're they're literally just turkey and cheese. But <laughs> it, it makes such a difference when the help is so immediate. I mean, the, it's immediate. And, and you rarely get that kind of mm. feedback that maybe that's why it's so impactful when you get it. But, it, you know, helping out other people doesn't have to be a $1 million donation or $100,000 or whatever we see celebrities giving all the time. It can be sandwiches for the food bank. Mm. And Celeste, you have a following. You've earned quite a following is, you know, maybe a peripatetic existence going from show to show to show. And you've gone to Atlanta. You were at WNYC. You're now in suburban DC in the Beltway, but your platform over social media on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, when you 
when you do one of these things out there, when people refer back to you uh, from your book interviews or your TED Talk, you see some amazing results. Like you tweeted out, just wanted to show you all what your generosity has purchased so far. You've donated enough for three months of food and some of the more expensive things like tampons and hygiene kits and hot sauce. I'm so overwhelmed. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. There was a $1,600 Venmo transfer. Yeah, I mean, and those were all like little donations where people went to my Venmo and gave like, you know, $20, $30. And when I woke up the next morning, there was $1,500 collected, which again, you know, it cost me about $500 a month to fill the food pantry. So that's three months worth. I mean, that's incredible to me. And it kind of feeds into this, what we were just talking about, which is how little things can make a difference. You know, you give 10 or 15 bucks over Venmo, but I can turn that into like, Sometimes I'll find specials of like a dollar, you know, 99 cents a can of of Campbell's soup. So that 10 bucks buys 10 cans of soup. I mean, it's not small to me, but it it is incredible that people are willing to be generous over social media like that um, to someone they've never met. And frankly, there's this um, feeling I have of, of humility to a certain extent because people don't know me. Like, how do they know I'm, they, they're trusting me with their donation. They're trusting that the money that they're giving is going to the food pantry. It is. Um, and that's one of the reasons I will continue posting photos of the supplies that I'm buying, just so people really do know that's where it's going. But there's this level of trust that's humbling, this this level of generosity and just good heartedness that, you know, it it makes you feel good. Celeste Headley, uh, you should read and you should go to celesteheadley.medium.com, An Anti-Racist Future, A Vision and Plan for the Transformation of Public Media, always in perpetual motion. If you're not hosting something or guest hosting something, you still have the gig going on at PBS? Um, actually, if PBS is, has not, is not airing Retro Report this year, although that will still be coming. I am hosting a podcast for the Conferences for Women, which is the largest conferences in North America, 45,000 people a year. And, um, you know, and I have another podcast coming up to be announced from the National Gallery of Art. So, you know, I've, oh. I've always got a bunch of irons in the fire. And I've always told you since we worked together on Tell Me More, and they knew that I was so psyched. We had such great banter going on for the seven, eight minute hits that they would know <laughs> to contact me when Celeste was hosting. <clears throat> All I want to do when I get in the car and scarf down my pizza uh, at lunch during the pandemic is just press that one button and hear your mellifluous voice. Oh, you're so nice. Uh, hopefully you'll stay on it and it will happen. Celeste Headley, radio host, author, empath. Uh, you are always welcome on this show. Thanks, Robin. I appreciate it. Full Disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. You can subscribe to Full Disclosure on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Rate us often, please. We are on Spotify and on NPR One and you can follow on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. A shout out to our radio listeners in Ventura, California, Asheville, North Carolina, and up in Arlington, Virginia, and in much of Washington, D.C. Get in touch if you, too, would like full disclosure on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>